Hello, and welcome to this APQC podcast. Uh, my name is Sarah Blackman. I will be moderating the podcast today. Um, and with me, I have Lauren Trees, who is the research program manager for our knowledge manage our knowledge management, excuse me, um, function in APQC. And we also have Holly Like Hoagland, who is the research program manager for process and performance management here at APQC. Um, in June of 2016, we hosted a webinar called How to Tie Process to Knowledge. It was a wonderful webinar, and it um, really got a lot of questions that we didn't have time to answer during the webinar live itself. So we wanted to take this opportunity today um, to bring Lauren and Holly back together to ask questions um, that were asked from webinar attendees. So um, thank you, Lauren, for joining. Thank you. Glad to be here. And thank you, Holly, for joining as well. Thank you. And I think um, if there's nothing else, I'll just go ahead and dive in. So the first question that we have here um, is, because things change regularly in organizations, is there a change management process to maintain knowledge maps? So I don't know that we have a formal change management process to maintain knowledge maps, but I definitely think that the general principles of change management apply. Um, I think that you want to review your map, depending on the process, maybe biannually or annually. If it's a really stable process where the knowledge inputs and outputs don't change a lot, it might be, you know, less frequently than that. But, you know, when it comes to any kind of knowledge asset, we really recommend having some kind of set cycle, um, even if it's everybody on the team going into that file, opening it up, taking a quick look at it in a team meeting for five or ten minutes and saying, hey, does this still look right? Does this still represent how we do this and the knowledge that comes in and out of it? Um, then at least you know that it's up to date. And then usually people will very quickly identify, hey, well, you know, we got a new system and all of this has changed and then you know that you need to put it into, you know, more of a, of a cycle to do that. So um, definitely recommend having a change management strategy and, and that review cycle for your knowledge map. I say uh, one of the things you could probably do, especially if you've got your knowledge tied to processes, is uh, a lot of organizations will have an annual or twice a year assessment of their process models um, as well. And those tend to also be, like you said, they're, they're prioritized based on how often things change, how high priority that information is or the processes. And you can just probably even link the two together so that they stay aligned. Yeah, I think if you can fit that into whatever your broader process is for maintaining and updating your process documentation, that that would make a lot of sense. All right. Um, the next one here, many organizations use Visio for process mapping. Does APQC have any examples of knowledge mapping using, using Visio? So, I have not personally seen any organization that uses Visio for, for knowledge mapping, and I don't know that it would be the right format for APQC's traditional process-based knowledge mapping activity, you know, because Visio is really a graphical representation of the process flow, and there's a lot of information going back to what we talked about on the webinar, uh, you know, that you have to tie into your knowledge map around what the, what the knowledge is, who has it, who needs it, what format it is, and I think that that might get cumbersome in a Visio format. 
Um, but, but there are probably knowledge elements that you could incorporate into a Visio type map. For example, if you wanted to look at a particular stream of knowledge, how it moves between people and systems, and some of the decisions associated with it. So there's probably a role for looking at knowledge in a Visio perspective, but I don't think for the specific process-based knowledge mapping that we talked about on the webinar that it would be a great fit. Okay. Lauren. Oh, I was oh, going to say Holly. a quick uh, follow-up question then. What kind of approach do you recommend then? I mean, I know people always want to look at what the tool is, but do you think a tool is necessary or could you even go as far as, you know, an Excel sheet or your typical butcher paper and post-it notes? So. I really think that Excel is the best tool for this. I know that that's not, you know, very slick and exciting, but, um, you know, and, and we have a range of Excel templates for different type of knowledge mapping in our knowledge base. So that's where I would recommend starting is go download our Excel editable knowledge map template, and then you can customize it and add things, subtract things based on exactly how you want to perform your own knowledge mapping. Um, you know, there are certainly some tools that help people do knowledge mapping as a group. Um, you know, if you have a large global team and you're trying to do that, that um, you know, virtually. But uh, if you have everybody in the same room or you can pass that file around, I don't think you need any real fancy software for this. So being the product owner for a specific tool that we have here available to APQC members, I have to ask if Mosaic is a good um, option for knowledge mapping. So I still think that you're going to want to lay out some of your knowledge map in the Excel template, but one of the things that we've been talking about as we're starting to experiment with different uses of Mosaic in the knowledge management space is around how you can use Mosaic to pull in some of the knowledge that you talk about in your map. Um, and we're actually going to be talking about that on the knowledge management community call in July this month. So, um, and we're actually in the process of building out a, uh, a process in Mosaic that matches one of the knowledge maps that we've created for one of our internal processes here at APQC to show, okay, here's, you know, if you have a gap in tacit knowledge, here's where you could, you know, address that. And if you have a gap in explicit knowledge, here's how you could use Mosaic to address that. So there's definitely a lot of interplay. Great. Yeah, and I just realized that I said product owner, and I'm actually the product marketer. <laughs> um, John Tesmer is the product owner, and if you guys have any questions about that, he's, of course, happy. He or I, he or I are happy to help you all with any questions on Mosaic. Um, anything else on this particular question, or should I move on? That's all I had. Okay. So in the Wipro example from the webinar, how do they go about implementing the knowledge once it's captured? The process on your slide, Lauren, um, ends at capturing and publishing the knowledge piece in an IT platform. So I think it's a great question because as I've tried to emphasize throughout the webinar, the documenting, reviewing, and publishing of knowledge is, is really only half the battle or maybe less than half the battle. And what's really important is what happens next. 
and the process that Wipro has laid out does end at publication on that particular slide, but it's part of a, a broader process within the organization. And once the knowledge is ready to be published, they push it out to a wide variety of channels, uh, you know, depending on what it is, if it's a software fix or a white paper. So that goes out to the appropriate repositories. Uh, you know, people get alerted for new content in those various repositories based on their role and different things that the organization knows about them and the kind of knowledge that they might need to do their jobs. And people can go in and search for content and knowledge in those repositories. And their business processes, their project management process explicitly tells people to go do that at certain times. So you have that tie-in to say, OK, you're starting a new project. You should probably go look at these repositories and pull out anything that's relevant. And then Wipro also uses analytics to identify content that might be relevant either to an individual based on their role and their profile, the things that they've looked at in the past, um, you know, or to a project team based on what it's working and the type of project. And they actually serve content proactively up to those individuals and teams through tabs on the project site, tabs on the internet. So there's both a push and a pull for the published content, um, you know, and getting that into the hands of people who need it. So definitely the process does not end with that publication stage. Do you have anything to add, Holly? I say no, but I think that's a great point is, I mean, one of the biggest hurdles of anything, whether it's it's knowledge maps, knowledge information collection, or even like process maps and process models, just because you build it doesn't mean it's going to get used. And as you said, the key is integrating it and making it available to them in the flow of work in an easy manner. Um, and there's, like you said, there's that push and pull. Some of the things we've also said, seen is that some, especially like for project work, is making it a requirement for business cases to identify, you know, any lessons learned, any best practices, um, or, or any materials that you can use as a template as part of that business case and building that into it. And if you haven't done that, then your business case for your projects doesn't even get to go into the portfolio assessment process. Yeah, Whipper actually does something very similar with their projects. If you are a project manager there and you report that you use 0% reusable knowledge on your on your project, somebody comes out and asks, well, why didn't you, why weren't you able to use anything that the organization's already, you know, created? Um, you know, why did you have to start from scratch? And sometimes there's a very good reason for that. It's a new type of project that they've never done before and there really isn't anything out there. But, um, you know, I think when you get that person knocking on your door, when you say, oh, I didn't reuse anything, that's a real trigger for the next project to be like, okay, I need to make sure that I've, I've looked at this and seen whether there were any best practices or, you know, reusable code, anything that I could have used on this project that already exists. Okay, so moving on to the next question. What are your thoughts, Lauren and or Holly, on how to motivate people to proactively contribute to a knowledge repository? Uh, they go on and say, on several occasions, knowledge tends to reside with only a few individuals involved in projects and aren't documented formally to reuse throughout the organization. So I'll start by saying this is something that we've done a lot of research on, what motivates behaviors for knowledge contribution and sharing. So if this is something that you're really struggling with, I strongly recommend you know looking in the knowledge base to get that complete picture. But in terms of a few quick recommendations, 
I think you have to start at the beginning and make sure that the people that you want to contribute that content understand why you want them to do that and what the what the value proposition is both for the organization and for them as individuals. Um, and then I can't you know I, I can't overemphasize the need to not make the logistics of content contribution overly burdensome. That's one of the most common problems that we see. Organizations want people to contribute content, say, to a central knowledge base, but they create this form that has 85 different fields, and you have to, you know, add nine different metadata tags to put that content in, and people quickly realize that it is not worth their, their time. So you may need to collect some metadata, but anything that you can do through automation or get some of your, you know, younger people, interns or, you know, mentees involved in helping you classify that content so that somebody who is a subject matter expert or a process expert, um, you know, if they can contribute something quickly and there's a streamlined user experience there, that can be really really beneficial. Um, you know, you need to teach people what the tools are and when to use each tool. I think we see that especially in organizations that have these really complex infrastructures for knowledge um, where they have 16 different platforms where you could go post it to a wiki or you could go post it in a community or you could add it to the knowledge repository. It gets really overwhelming for people, so anything that you can do to say, okay, well, if it's, if it's this type of knowledge, um, then you want to go here so that people have clear instructions. Uh, you know, you want to build contribution into the process, and we were just talking about that a little bit, and also into the expectations and measures for specific roles, so whatever you can do on that front to say, okay, well, for this role, we want to make sure that you're, you're contributing. Um, you know, the organizations that are most successful at this, they, they, you know, really ask people as they advance through the organization to make sure that they're sharing and contributing what they know. And then you want to reinforce those behaviors with some rewards and recognition, which for some organizations are really, you know, slick gamification strategies or, you know, formal awards. But sometimes it just comes down to making sure that managers and senior leaders are going into your communities and your systems and proactively thanking the people who are contributing, um, you know, to constantly just reinforce the value of that to the organization. Lauren, I have a question. Um, so how much, I, I know traditionally with knowledge you've always had the issue that knowledge is power and people hoard knowledge because um, it gives them a leg up as far as promotions go or their value is seen in the organization. Do you think the measures and kind of that reward system help counteract that effectively? Yeah, I mean, you're always going to have a, a certain very small percentage of people, well, not always, but sometimes you do, you know, who are sociopaths and who don't want to share their knowledge. <laughs> but really, when you're talking about knowledge as power, you've probably set up a situation, inadvertently usually, where, you know, people feel that way, like they need to hold on to those things. And if you put it into your measures and into your culture that what gets you further in the organization, what gets attention from senior leadership, positive reinforcement from leaders, um, you know, what advances you through the organization is contributing your thought leadership, sharing your knowledge, sharing your expertise, then a lot of those problems tend to, you know, fade away over time. 
Okay. Um, how about does APQC use knowledge mapping to resource processes? So, I don't have a lot of experience with this, but I definitely think it's a potential secondary application of knowledge mapping. I mean, once you've mapped out your process and you understand all the skills and expertise that are needed to execute that process, you could certainly match that against, say, a skills database or some kind of expertise location system to make sure that you're bringing the right skills and knowledge to bear. I think most commonly what a knowledge map will help you with is to recognize that you have a knowledge gap within a particular part of a process. So, for example, maybe that step's not working well because, you know, the core team responsible for it doesn't have this particular skill set and they have to go over to this other group and they have to wait three days to get that information back. So it can help you figure out, um, you know, okay, this is a particular skill set or, or expertise that we need to, you know, resource to this project team to reduce the cycle time or improve the quality of what they're doing. Okay. What type or types of content do you recommend to be captured as knowledge? So I'm not sure that I fully understand this question, but I'm going to take a stab at it. I mean, I would encourage everyone to think about all the content that's generated in your organization as a form of knowledge, um, though obviously not all knowledge comes in the form of content. Um, you know, and what there's obviously, there's tons of documents, there's tons of content that's being created throughout your organization all the time. And what knowledge mapping really does is help you identify what those key knowledge assets are, um, you know, that you are needed for each step in the process. And that helps you figure out what content and knowledge you need to focus on, whether, you know, that means taking knowledge that's in people's heads and trying to get it documented on paper and video, um, you know, teaching that knowledge to more people or just making sure that knowledge gets passed to the right people and systems at the right time in the context of, of the process. So I think it can be overwhelming when you try to look at all of the content or knowledge in your organization. And that's what, you know, knowledge mapping and then, you know, if you want to superimpose some kind of prioritization process on top of that um, can really help you figure out, okay, these are the things that we need to zero in on to make this process work better. Anything to add to that, Holly? So, wouldn't you also want to make sure that the content you're looking for then is strategic? So, what are the strategic drivers of the organization? Um, you know, if it's a new product development focus, then a lot of the content you're going to look at is going to be the kind of customer insight requirements, um, things having to do with the portfolio management system, and things like that would be kind of the content information you'd prioritize first. Yeah, and when I say a prioritization process, those are the kinds of questions that I would put into that process. You know, how how rare is the knowledge? How strategically important is it to the organization? Um, you know, how how difficult it is to apply, things like that, um, you know, can really help you pinpoint those specific areas where you need to pay the most attention and, and focus on, you know, knowledge capture, transfer, and reuse. And um, kind of, a, I guess, to be regarded as a second part to that question, but what should you measure to capture the success of knowledge mapping? So, 
being a process audience. <laughs> I know this audience loves to measure things. And I'm, I'm going to give a little bit of a sideways answer here. Because um, I want to remind people that a knowledge map is not really an end in and of itself. And you can create the greatest knowledge map in the world. But if you create it and then go stick it on a shelf somewhere and don't do anything with it, then you may have gotten an A-plus on your knowledge map, but you're not really getting any value. So what we would encourage is to take that map with your knowledge gaps and create an action plan to address those gaps. So what I would recommend is measuring progress against that action plan um, and your ability to address and close the gaps as a, as a way to evaluate the ultimate success of the knowledge mapping exercise. Another way, I mean, especially because people who like to quantify things, um, you can also look at consumption patterns and usability. Um, we've seen something similar with like uh, data and analytics projects. Um, people who've been kicking off providing those kind of insights and that information to decision makers. And one of the ways they're tracking that, you know, collecting this information and having it available and accessible is just through that, looking and seeing what's being downloaded, what's being accessed, how often is it being accessed, and that gives them a little bit of a feel of the adoption rates. All right. Thanks, Holly. A good answer for the measurement-oriented. <laughs> Not me, measurement-oriented, never. Um, <laughs> Um, okay, the next question here. So, Lauren, you mentioned the importance of standard knowledge processes in the webinar. However, given the wide variability of expert slash peer slash slash tacit knowledge, would it not be more effective to focus on accrediting knowledge channels? So, my, my answer to this is yes and no. It's, it's easy to say every piece of knowledge and every type of knowledge is different. Um, you know, you don't know what people need to know or have to share. So we can just put these knowledge channels and systems in place and let people go figure out how they need to use them. And, and there's definitely a role for that. And we see, you know, I mean, in, if an organization is going to, you know, have a successful knowledge flow, they need to have systems where people can just go in and share what they know, uh, you know, ask questions organically. But even there, I think there's a huge role for standardization across the organization in terms of what those tools are and how they work. Um, you know, what we see is a lot of times the R&D group will go create a system that works for them and the sales group will go create another system and use another tool that works for them. And you really miss those opportunities for cross-boundary knowledge sharing and collaboration. So even if you're, a, you know, a, accrediting knowledge channels to make sure that you're doing that at the enterprise level as much as possible. Um, you know, and then beyond that, I think that in most organizations there is a role for some kind of standard knowledge capture and transfer process, um, you know, that is a little more formal. You're not going to use it for everything by any stretch of the imagination, but for some of those high priority gaps that you want to fill when you're looking at the action plan that comes out of your knowledge map, then, you know, you, you probably want to put some structure around that because then you can measure, um, you know, what you're, what you're achieving and how you're closing that gap and exactly what knowledge is being captured and shared through that process. Okay. We only have one question left. Do you have anything to add to that last one, Holly? Do not. 
All right. So the final question, has APQC seen instances where its process and knowledge frameworks have been adopted into formal business architecture programs as a part of enterprise architecture? Say, do you want me to handle that one, Lauren? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to kick that one over to you, Holly. <laughs> All right. Um, we don't see it very often, but occasionally we do see the two put together and then tied into enterprise architecture. Um, one organization, what they did was they went and attached um, all the information, all the information flow with the processes and their enterprise architecture. And the reason behind this is for the very specific purpose of, of a, it's it's providing access to the right information to the right people at the right time. Um, so what they did was by tying all of this together, then employees could log into their system, and based on their login, they would have the information, uh, their process steps that they needed, the procedural documents that they needed, the best practices for the process. All of that would then be pushed to them so that they had access to the appropriate information as they were going about doing their job. Um, it saved a lot of time for them so they didn't have to go through the weeds and understand exactly what they were trying to accomplish and matching it in the right terminology that the organization used for the architecture or anything along those lines. Um, so we have seen it. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's, it's usually fairly effective. And I would just add that I think we've seen that on the knowledge management side of the house as well, not necessarily with organizations calling it explicitly out in terms of enterprise architecture, but the same kind of concept. So there's definitely organizations out there that are that are doing that and seeing seeing positive results. Great. Well, that sums up all of the questions from the June webinar. Um, thank you, Lauren, for spending some time with us, and thank you, Holly, as well. Uh, APQC, if you did not know, helps organizations work smarter, faster, and with greater confidence. It is the world's foremost authority in benchmarking best practices process and performance improvement, and knowledge management. Our unique structure as a member-based nonprofit makes us a differentiator in the marketplace. We partner with more than 500 member organizations worldwide in all industries. And with more than 40 years of experience, APQC remains the world leader in transforming organizations. Visit us at www.apqc.org and learn how you can make best practices your practices. Thanks a bunch, and we'll see you next time.